Matthew chapter 5. Well, I guess uh, not everybody got Tim's message this morning. Uh, Not everyone in Pell saw that this was going to be the most famous sermon ever. Uh, judging by the fact that we're not uh, trying to keep people out because we're so full up. Uh, Maybe some of you have come here tonight and you have expected to listen to the most famous sermon ever, in which case, let me put you out of your misery. This is not me blowing my own trumpet. I'm not saying that this particular sermon of mine is going to be the most famous sermon ever, but the one that we're going to start studying is the most famous sermon Ever. That is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, which begins in Matthew chapter 5. And just as a bit of, a bit of an introduction to get us understanding what the theme of this is, uh, it came to my mind that I was, when I was watching a television program uh, a few weeks back, and there was a French man in London, and there, he was supposed to be arrested by the police. But the French man didn't speak English, and the police officer said, I don't speak French. I can't go and speak to him. I don't speak French. And the English police officer said, well, just talk louder. (laughs) Just talk louder, and he'll he'll understand you. But if we go to another country, like France, and we expect to do everything that we do in England, then we're going to get in trouble. For example, what if you drove like you do in England? I drove in America last year, and there was two times in the month we were there that we had scary moments because I was on what I consider the right side of the road, but the rest of the world seems to think it might be the wrong side of the road. But there are different sides, there are different speed limits. I mean, in France, there's even different metrics for measuring distance. When you go to another country, you have to start acting a little differently. But what if we change citizenship completely. Well, then we become something different, don't we? And we don't just have to start acting differently for a time like you are on holiday, but you are permanently to be different in some ways. And this is what happens when we are part of God's kingdom. And how we live in this new kingdom, where we have a a, a new citizenship, if you like, a new passport, is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. To put the sermon in context, uh, look at chapter 4 and verse 17. Jesus has been teaching and preaching and healing in Galilee. And in chapter 4, verse 17, it says what his message was. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And later on in the same chapter, he calls the fishermen to follow him. And then we saw how Jesus showed how he ought to be obeyed by proving who he is through his ministry, through the the preaching and the teaching and and all those healings. Well, we read in chapter 4 that we need to repent. What does that look like? We come to chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount shows us what a Christian's character and conduct is in the kingdom. Because as Christians, we are in a new kingdom. It's not France but the kingdom of heaven, and its citizens are called Christians. If you want to know what a Christian looks like, then this sermon is one place where we should look. 
And it's important to know because in this kingdom, there is one king, King Jesus. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we have the king's speech. Now, as we've been going through Matthew's gospel, uh, if it was a car journey, uh, so far we've been on the motorway. We've been going along and the signposts have been pointing us to different aspects of who Jesus is. That he is, he is the king, his, his descendants, the, the, his sinlessness, and all of those things we've seen. But as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we slow down significantly. As I was thinking about the motorway, I was almost going to say like at Junction 10, but I hope it's not as frustrating as that. It's more like we pull in to a service station at, to stop and to think. And the reason for doing it this way is twofold. Firstly, this is how Matthew writes his gospel. If you remember, right back to the very first message in Matthew, I explained how Matthew's gospel is split up into five sections. And they're broken up by five sermons or five discourses. And this is deliberate. And you can tell when this happens because at the end of each sermon, there's a saying something like this. And here's the one at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things. And that happens five different times. It says something similar to when Jesus had finished saying these things, and then Matthew carries on with his narrative and things speed up again. So every time Jesus has a a discourse, Matthew slows down. And then after Jesus finishes saying these things, Matthew speeds up. So that's one reason to slow down here. But the other reason is that there is just so much here in this sermon for us to understand. If you uh, think about how this sermon is put together, uh, you might have different views. There are different views to how this sermon is compiled. Some say that this is just a a compilation of various teachings that Jesus gave throughout his ministry that Matthew cobbled together and put in his gospel. But Matthew here intends us to see this as a sermon. He gives a, a geographical location. He's in Galilee, he's on a mountainside. And he sees that the crowds grow as the sermon progresses, because at the end of the sermon, the crowds seem to be bigger than the beginning. So it's, it's unlikely that this is a compilation of various teachings of Jesus. Others say that, yes, this is a sermon, and this is the sermon in full. This is, this is Jesus just speaking, just as it's written here, exactly like this, all in one go. And it takes about 20 minutes to read. And whilst, yes, Jesus did say all of these things, it's unlikely that the Sermon on the Mount lasted 20 minutes. I mean, they went away up on the mountainside, not for just a 20-minute message. Most likely, what's happened here is Matthew's sermon notes of what was a long stretch of teaching over a day or a number of days. And the longer length of teaching is indicated by perhaps the larger crowd that seems to be at the end of the sermon than at the beginning. But here we, the the best way of looking at this sermon is to say this is Matthew's sermon notes that he takes of Jesus' teaching on the mount. And so if we read it slowly, then it's good for us to look at Matthew's sermon notes in the sections that he gives them. So we can focus attention on these parts rather than be overwhelmed. But although there is much in this sermon, there is one overarching theme, and that is Jesus and his kingdom. 
And this evening, as we introduce this sermon, we're going to examine how we ought to listen to the king's speech. Now, in one sense, we're going to be able to apply this to all Bible study, to all preaching, to singing, to praying, and so on. But at the same time tonight, I want us to think about how we listen to this particular sermon, which is so often misunderstood. And we can actually find these lessons just in the first couple of verses. So let's just read Matthew chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now there are three positive actions that I want to explain to you this evening that hopefully will help you to listen to Jesus in general and the Sermon on the Mount in particular. And the first action to take is to remove the distractions completely. Remember the context of this Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 25, just the the verse before we've just read, it says, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. There's large crowds from all over the place coming to follow Jesus. And the ministry of Jesus, of of teaching, of preaching and, and healing, drew so many people that there was no peace and quiet. There was no time for teaching in the way that he does here in the Sermon on the Mount. And it was important that Jesus was able to teach like this. Listen to this from Mark's Gospel in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 verses 35 to 38 says this, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So Mark explains his account at a similar time to what Jesus is doing here, of how Jesus was so busy with the crowds, people wanting him all the time, that he says, we need to go somewhere else because I've come mainly to preach. And Jesus, it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, saw the crowds and he went up onto the mountainside, which was actually not a mountain. We think of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, That uh, isn't necessarily uh, the literal case. It wasn't a, a specific mountain. Uh, but it was described, could be described as hill country. The hill country around the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we can see that the purpose of Jesus going there was to teach his disciples. And we can see this just in the position of Jesus. It says he sat down, which was the position of a teacher. And it was his disciples that came to him, at least initially. The disciples here are not the twelve exclusively, but all those who are following him. And they're distinguished from the crowds. They know that they've not come on the hillside for healing, but from the position of Jesus, they knew they have come to hear him teach. This shows that Jesus came up to the mountainside for the purpose of giving instruction. And the disciples came for the purpose of listening, and they went there because of the crowds. There was lots of people that needed healing, But Jesus prioritized time to teach. 
He removed the distractions in order to teach the disciples. And the disciples had their distractions removed to listen to the king's speech. And if you want to hear Jesus speak, then we also have to remove the distractions completely. What distracts you from listening to Jesus? Sometimes it can be busy lives, can't it? The healing ministry of Jesus was a wonderful thing, but he chose for a time to leave people in order to have this focus time of teaching. And in order to listen to Jesus, we have to make a choice to say no to something else for a time, even good things, so that we can spend time with our Savior. But if we are honest with ourselves, the distractions we have aren't usually important things that can wait. Most of our distractions are things we don't need to do at all. How easy is it to just watch that extra program or just play that game or have that extra time sleeping rather than spending time with Jesus. In the 21st century, our biggest distraction can be in our pocket, can't it? Whilst phones can be a great blessing and have been a great blessing in many ways, they can also be a huge distraction, can't they? They can be useful for having our Bibles on, but how often do we read the Bible on our phone, and then when the text message comes in or the Facebook update comes our way, we want to read that instead of our Bible. And perhaps in church, are you tempted to play on them or look on the internet, which is a distraction, isn't it, which we don't need? Removing distractions and getting away from them help us to listen to Jesus. I find it incredibly helpful myself sometimes just to go for a walk to pray so that I'm not distracted by everything that needs going on in the location that I'm in. It may be different for you, but just consider what distracts you from listening to Jesus and remove them for a time so that you can hear his voice. And the reason we need to hear his voice is because of who he is. This is Jesus, the king, who is telling us how to live in his kingdom. This is something we need to keep reminding ourselves of because there are so many other voices that are calling us to follow them. That is why if you want to hear the king's speech, we need to recognize the authority clearly. Jesus assumes a position of authority here. First of all, we see the fact that he was sitting down, which is the position of a teacher. And then the NIV uses this phrase uh, at the end of verse 2, he began to teach them, which is what happened. But in some translations, it's also translated uh, something just before it, which says, he opened his mouth and taught them. And the phrase translated literally is, he opened his mouth. And it's important because it was meaning something significant is about to be said. In the book of Acts, the phrase, he opened his mouth, is used at significant moments in the progress of the church. So, for example, when Philip speaks to the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, verse 35... And when Peter speaks to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34, it says he opened his mouth, which is meaning something important is about to be said. And the point here is that Jesus has something important to say. This is significant teaching. We need to listen to what he has to say. But within the Sermon on the Mount 
as a whole, authority is a vitally important theme. Jesus assumes in this sermon an authority which is way beyond what anyone has, would ever have said at the time. For example, when we read an exposition of the Old Testament law, Jesus says this phrase a number of times. You have heard it said by people long ago, but I tell you. You see the authority? You've heard it said before, but, but I tell you. Now, rabbis would speak on the authority of someone else, but here Jesus assumes this authority for himself. What he tells you is what matters. What I tell you. In the Beatitudes, you have uh, another example. Jesus says in verse 11 that you are blessed when people persecute you because of me. That is, he is of such importance that people will persecute his followers because of him. And then just turn over to chapter 7 and verse 22. Chapter 7 and verse 22, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Do you notice there, Jesus? He's the judge. He's calling himself Lord. He's the one that they have to answer to. He speaks with authority. And then just notice at the end of chapter 7, in verse 28 and 29, what did people get out of this sermon? What, was, what were they saying as they left the hillside? When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. You see, the authority that Jesus had is especially recognized by his disciples. They are the ones who are mentioned as coming to listen to him after he had sat down. And we'll see that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus speaking to his people, to his disciples. This sermon is for non-Christians only in the sense that it shows them that they're not Christians. And it shows them that what, what they cannot be and that they need new birth in order to be able to live in this way. But non-Christians don't recognize the authority of Jesus. Christians do. We look at our Lord Jesus Christ and we do what he says because of who he is, because of who is saying it. And in this sermon, we see what our king has to say about how we as his people should live in his kingdom. And as we think about authority, let me ask this question. What has authority in your life? Is it Jesus Christ and his word, or is it something else? Is the authority in your life the opinions of other people, caring what other people think all the time, at the expense of what Jesus thinks? Is the authority in your life your own sinful desires, the things that you want to do that are wrong? Is the authority in your life celebrities that you see on the glossy magazines and you look at their life and you think, oh, I want to be just like that? Or people on Instagram that put pictures of their perfect lives that don't really exist if you just dug just a little bit further. Is the authority in your life perhaps another religion or another way of life? But here, Jesus is claiming authority. He is the one to li we should listen to. He demands it. And as his people, we ought to be paying attention.
So as we come to the king's speech, we need to remove the distractions completely. We need to recognize the authority clearly. This is Jesus speaking. But finally, to hear him properly, we need to receive the teaching correctly. And this means we need to work hard at understanding what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying, especially in this sermon. We can make the Bible say all sorts of things if we twist it the right way. But no text has been misinterpreted as many ways as the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, John Stott said this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the most well-known, the most misunderstood, and the least obeyed. And there are lots of ways of interpreting this sermon. If you were to, to read various books on this, you can read of all the different ways that people interpret the Sermon on the Mount, and then you can read what the author thinks is the right way of interpreting it. Interpreting it. However, all of the wrong ways boil down really to four. And I want to just look at these four ways of interpreting the Sermon on the Mount for this reason. Either you've all believed them in the past, believe them now, or will hear them from other people when you ask them about the Sermon on the Mount. And we need to understand this clearly, otherwise we come into this sermon with preconceptions and assumptions that that cloud our vision of what Jesus is saying. And if this is the speech of our King, telling us how to live in his kingdom, we need to understand it. By the way, all of these four uh, ways of interpreting it have an element of truth. Okay, see if you can spot the, the element of truth in each of these ways. And then at the end, we'll look at what is the right way to look at this sermon. So the first wrong way is this. Everybody should do it. Everybody should do the Sermon on the Mount. That is, that it, this is something that if everyone does it, and, and, and lives this out, there'll be peace on earth and social progress. This is the common non-Christian response to the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard people say, I, I, I assume, that they're not Christians, but they believe the Sermon on the Mount. You, you hear that a lot. I'm not a Christian, but I love the Sermon on the Mount. And I try to live out the Sermon on the Mount. And to many non-Christians, the Sermon on the Mount is the only part of the gospel that really matters. Well, what's true about this? Well, it is true that if if everyone did live this way, then you're right, there would be peace and there would be social progress. But the problem is, nobody can live this way. This sermon deals with the heart, which is where our actions come from. No one can externally do this by themselves. You can't legislate for the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Because you can't legislate for someone not to commit adultery in their heart. So this... A misinterpretation of this is everybody in the world should do this. Now, there's a sense where, of course, everyone should do it. I know that. But that's what people, non-Christians, would say. The Sermon on Mount, everyone can do this. And if everyone did it, there'd be peace. The second wrong way is very similar to this. It's where someone looks at this and says, Christians must do this. Notice the tone, because Christians must do this, because Jesus says they must. But Christians must do this. That is the response of the legalist. 
They would say that what Jesus is doing here is telling us exactly how we should live and therefore we should jolly well do this. And just try harder. Every, we, we, we shouldn't be failing at this, we should be just doing it and trying and trying and, and trying harder. Now there's truth in this. Yes, of course we should do what Jesus says. Yes, everything in this sermon is what we are supposed to do, how we're supposed to live. This is a very applicable part of the Bible, but the problem is, like the previous few, we can't religiously do this because the problem is internally in our hearts, not externally. And who can realistically say that they've, they've got Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48 nailed? It says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly, Father in heaven is perfect. As we read that, we can't just say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do that then. You see, that's the, the heart's wrong. Well, the third wrong way is the opposite of this. They view the sermon like this. No one can do it. No one can do it, so let's not bother trying. And they believe that no one's supposed to do this. This is supposed to show us that we're miserable sinners and we need to seek God for forgiveness. Now again, can you see the truth? If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you should realize you are a sinner and you need forgiveness. But the point of the Sermon on the Mount is this is how Christians should be living. Jesus doesn't speak this sermon just to beat us up and say, look how bad you are. We're supposed to obey the summons of this sermon. The final wrong view, and this one's slightly unusual, is that no one has to do it yet. That is, it looks at this sermon as something which is only really for the future. They would say, uh, the sermon is not for now, it's for the future. Well, what's the truth of this? The truth is that until we're in glory, there are times when we will fail in this sermon. When we are in glory, we will live as we ought to live. But to say this has no application now is frankly ridiculous. Also, some of what is said here cannot be true of the kingdom of heaven in the future. For example, in heaven, I'm not going to be persecuted or slapped on my right cheek. If you talk to Christians about the Sermon on the Mount, you may come across any one of these variations. So let's answer the question then, how should we understand the Sermon on the Mount? Now, in one sense, you'll combine it best, if you understand it best if you combine all of these truths together in some way. And really, the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount is this, how Christians live in God's kingdom. And I want to break that definition down. Firstly, we have to understand this is how Christians live. How Christians live in God's kingdom. Now, a Christian is someone who has been born again. And in order to live in God's kingdom, we need new birth. This sermon makes us realize that we are sinners and we need to seek salvation through Jesus Christ. We see in this sermon the need to pray for forgiveness, the need to build our lives on the rock. We need salvation, and this sermon shows us that. This is for Christians. But secondly, this is how Christians live. Once we are born again... We are new people, and God gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us to do what is right. That means as Christians, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we're reading not just how we ought to live, but actually how we will live as God's people. 
This sermon is far more about being than it is about doing. If we are Christians, we will live like this because our heart has been changed. You see how it's so different from must try harder, must do more. No, no. I will be like this because Jesus has made me like this because he's given me the Holy Spirit. And we know, don't we, that this is progressive for us. We grow in these areas. An encouraging sentence in this regard is written by Sinclair Ferguson. He writes this, The sermon is not aiming to produce a sense of hopelessness and despair in us. Rather, it is intended to set before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our life to become. See, this is what God intends for us. This is what we will be like. Progressively now, perfectly in glory. So we realize we're not perfect, but we are growing in all of these areas until one day we will be like him. We will be with him forever. But we know that that is partly future. Because we're not perfect now, as our Father in heaven is perfect. So there is a future part, as well as a right now part, to this sermon. We spoke about this before. It's called the the now and the not yet of God's kingdom. And this is uh, the last part of our definition. It's how Christians live in God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is here right now. But there's an element of it not being here yet. And I've got a diagram I hope is helpful on the screen. And if you look at the diagram, this is what it's trying to explain. Before Christ came, the kingdom was coming. But when Christ came, it arrived. But right now, after Christ has arrived, it is alongside the physical fallen world. And so the kingdom of God right now is spiritual. It has citizens, but the citizens live in the fallen world. But when Jesus returns and there's a new heaven and earth, the kingdom of God will be all that there is. And it will then be physical as well as spiritual. And then we will be all that we should be. Right now, as we live in the fallen world, we are becoming more like Jesus. It's a progressive thing. But when God's kingdom is fully here, then Matthew chapter 5 verse 48 will be true for us. We will be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. So what this sermon calls us to is, as Christians living in God's kingdom, is to a radical discipleship. If we hear this teaching correctly, we will be totally different from the world around us. We will look like foreigners from a strange land. But a land that is so wonderful, others will want to come and live there too. In this sermon, there is a sharp distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian. And we have to wonder, don't we, whether have we as Christians today lost our distinctiveness? Or have we been shaped by the world? I haven't got the answer, but it's something that we all ought to consider for ourselves, isn't it? The world's sexual morals, the world's music, the world's marriages, the world's divorces, its morality, its materialism, its approach to food and to drink and to entertainment and to all sorts of things, 
Do we get pushed into that too easily and lose our distinctiveness? And that's the challenge in this sermon, to be distinctive Christians. Again, John Stott calls this a Christian counterculture. Totally different lives, totally distinct. But if lived in this way, our great evangelistic talks as we shine as lights for Christ in the world. And I think that's the concluding challenge for us as we introduce this Sermon on the Mount. Are we living as citizens of heaven? And in order for us to do that, we need to listen to Jesus. We need to come to this sermon with ears that are open and ready to hear what Jesus had to say. And let me warn you, this is a challenging sermon. This challenges us as Christians. There's hard things in here. This is radical discipleship. But in order for us to do that better, we need to remove the distractions completely, recognize his authority clearly, and receive the teaching correctly. Before we begin looking at the sermon itself next week, why not this week read it all for yourself? It's only uh, three chapters long. As I say, it takes maybe 20 minutes to read it. It doesn't take long. Perhaps you can start to memorize some of it. But don't just skim through it and then put it down and not pick it up again. Take time to go through this sermon. Allow it to speak to you. And challenge you to live radical lives following Jesus, our King. Well, we're going to, before we come to the Lord's table, uh, sing. And uh, the hymn we're going to sing is, Take Time to Be Holy. Take Time to Be Holy. Listen to the words.